The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. So, Valentine's Day has come and gone, and I chastised you for deciding that, for all intents and purposes, the most romantic place in the world would be Ireland. Well, it, it hasn't been bad. I mean, last night, uh, Saturday night, we were in Temple Bar. Temple Bar is the uh, headquarters of all the bars. And uh, the music went on until well after 3 o'clock in the morning. So Ireland had a very loud Valentine's Day. We had a very hard time getting to sleep. Uh, but we had a very nice night. We went to a place called the Green Hen uh, on Exchequer Street in, in uh, Temple Bar. And uh, it was lovely. And then we came home, watched TV, and then got wake, woken up around midnight by the party revelers. <laughs> Spoken like someone who's been married for 20 years. <laughs> 25. Wow. Yeah. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. The 40 best Saturday Night Live musical guests, and we'll run down the most controversial putting the fun back into funerals. We'll look at the small town radio phenomenon and mark the passing of a DJ you imitate every time you put on a radio voice. Why nerds everywhere may soon be mistaken for hipsters thanks to their um, asthma inhalers. Plus, Howard Jones is back from the 80s and there's an app for that. We'll look at the new wave musicians move into the 21st century. Opinions are like iPhones. Everybody's got one and nobody cares about yours. And now... Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Forty best Saturday Night Live musical guests over forty years. You know you're getting old when your musical um, exposition is largely tied to whomever is playing on at the end of the the David Letterman show or as the interstitials for SNL. Yeah, I mean. Saturday Night Live has a 40-year history of having special musical guests. I remember the first first show was hosted by George Carlin. I can't remember who the musical guest was that night, but I do remember the very first musical guest I ever saw. And I was at my grandparents in eastern Manitoba. They had a very tall outdoor aerial, which allowed them to pick up uh, CK, no, KCND out of Pembina, North Dakota. Uh, it was about 100 miles away, low-power border station. And if the atmosphere was just right in the winter, you could pick up a fuzzy version of Saturday Night Live. And the first musical guest I ever saw was the band. Be 1976 before they broke up, and I remember them doing the night they drove old Dixie down, and it was uh, it was like wow, I'm going to have to watch this show more often if I ever get cable in my house. You've got this top 40 list in the top five. That is number five on the list. The tragically hip number four, David Bowie in 1979 is number three. Uh, there's uh, the Fear Riot for 1981, pre Chili Peppers, and uh, Elvis. 
number one on your list because he gets his revenge. Yeah. Now uh, we should. Ex- those. That's my list. Now the the list that I'm going to put in the show notes is uh, from the Village Voice. They ranked their 40 best Saturday Night Live musical moments. You just went through my five. Now the the one we're talking about. Uh, with Elvis Costello, this was 1977, December 1977. The night he was on that uh, on the show uh, was the night the Sex Pistols were supposed to appear, but they ran into all kinds of visa problems, so they weren't allowed in the country to perform. Last minute guest Elvis Costello. Now, if you look in the background, you'll see the drummer Pete Best, and he's wearing a T-shirt that says "Thanks, Melk." which is a reference to <laughs> Malcolm McLaren. So thanks, Mel, for screwing up the Sex Pistols uh, uh, visas so we get the opportunity to play. Now, there was some much controversy here because this was live television and the people running uh, SNL at the time were still very, very afraid of their NBC network masters. So they had agreed that Elvis would not perform the song Radio Radio because NBC owned an awful lot of radio stations at the time and the song was rather critical of how radio was being operated, especially in the United States. So they said, Elvis, you can perform providing you play your British hit, which is Less Than Zero. So Elvis goes on, starts playing Less Than Zero, gets maybe 20 seconds into the song, turns around, tells the band to shut up and say, ladies and gentlemen, there's just no reason for us to play the song and the band launches into radio radio and live tv what are you going to do brilliant and he was banned from saturday night live from that point on until the beastie boys came along and they they were going to play sabotage live i'm sorry ladies and gentlemen but there's just really no reason to do this song here tonight one two three five brilliant i just love that it seems that uh, the bands that get the most attention are the ones that rock the boat. Sinead O'Connor did that in 1992 when she was on Saturday Night Live. It was not the first track. It was the second track, though, that uh, had her producing a photo of Pope John Paul II ripping it up and throwing it into shreds at the camera, declaring, fight the real enemy. Yeah, she uh, did not do that in rehearsal. I can imagine not. And it's also, because she did it in the second one, you know that it would have hit the fan had she done it in her first of two tracks, but she waited to the second, which meant they couldn't pull the plug on her the second time around. Yeah, she was doing a Bob Marley song. And and right when, you know, if you, if you watch it, and you'll see what she's singing when she tears the picture in two, and uh, there's no mistaking her uh, uh, her message there. We know we will win. We have confidence in the victory of good over evil. Fight the real enemy. But again, you know, this was this was a, a career limiting move. Uh, Sinead O'Connor was on such an upward trajectory in 1990, but then she was doing dumb things like this in America. She said that she wouldn't p- appear at venues that played the Star Spangled Banner before the event started. Uh, Frank Sinatra was threatening to quote kick her ass, and then she just went all weird and and she just. You know, she refused to appear on the Grammy Awards. She refused to accept any Grammy Awards. She sabotaged her own career, and she's never recovered from that. Well, she's making a comeback now, is she not? She spent all that time uh, being a pastor at a church, if I recall correctly. But now she's got an album back. She's cleaned herself up, and she's looking very 
full on rock and roll again. Yeah, I'm not really sure how much of that is 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 photoshopping, but you know, it's a very good album. I can't remember what it's called. I'm not bossy, I'm the boss. You know, it's a very good album. Here's the problem. The album has a song called Get Me to Church. Hozier comes out with a song called Take Me to Church. And I'm wondering if there was only one room for one song that involves a request for sanctuary in uh, a, a divine building. Oh, take me to church. records are really really good it's just unfortunate that she manages to um you know self-sabotage i don't know that we're going to call it sabotage but ashley simpson in 2004 made a lot of attention on saturday night live as well uh, courtesy of uh, a very milly vanilli-esque moment yeah you know her uh, her her backing track screwed up once again ashley simpson You can tell where the band tries to save it, but she just starts dancing like a fool and basically gives up. I feel like we almost owe Millie Vanilli and Ashley Simpson a really big apology is because when people go to see concerts now, you know, so much of them are tracked. So much of them have backing vocals. I mean, if you go see a Britney Spears show or a Madonna show and they're dancing all over the place and all of a sudden they come up to the mic and they're not even out of breath. I mean, you know, something's going on. Yeah. And because people go to these shows and you know, this is in defense of tracking. People go to these shows to hear the songs as they hear them on the radio and on the CD and in the iPod. There's no way to reproduce those songs that accurately without having some sort of electronic trickery. There just isn't. There was a story the last time ACDC went on tour, this would be their Black Ice tour. It was weird because no matter where they went in the world, the lineup, the, the song lineup, was ex the set list was exactly the same. Exactly the same. They never moved anything around. And I, I was talking to one guy in the concert industry and he says, well, why, why, why wouldn't they change it up? I mean, there were petitions to, to add new songs and drop other songs. Why wouldn't they listen to the fans? And the guy looked at me straight in the eye and he said, because they'd have to go back into the studio and do it all over again. Wow. Yeah. Girl, you know it's true. I, you know, to, to lump Ashley Simpson in with Millie Vanilli, though, I don't know that that's fair of all people to Ashley Simpson. Because Millie Vanilli, those guys actually didn't sing any of their music whatsoever. This was more than just a case of uh, lip syncing. Yeah, you got a good point. I mean, they were just the dudes out front. They were the pretty boys, right? So, okay, I'll, uh, that's true. They, they were a bigger fraud than Ashley Simpson or, or anybody else give you that <laughs> not saying ashley simpson's not a fraud just not as big a fraud wow well. 
own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We have a sponsor. <laughs> I can't believe it. Our sponsor is discreetvape.com. Fantastic. <laughs> this is exactly what you think this is. Dave's not here. Okay. Now, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with um, the product. It's legal. Uh, for certain people in this country who have a uh, medical marijuana card, it is um, a legal product to consume. But I have a big problem with this product on only one count. What's that? What makes this uh, discreet vaporizer is that it resembles my Ventolin inhaler. <laughs> like, every coming-of-age movie, you've got that teenage nerd, and what signifies the teenage nerd, one of three, and sometimes more than one of three things. The, the, the big, thick glasses, yep. the pocket protector, yep. and the asthma inhaler. Yeah, like uh, like Millhouse on The Simpsons. Now, Andrew Miller is an expat uh, Ontarian. Uh, he and his wife grew up in Ontario. Uh, he's a, a, a huge electronics nerd building all sorts of robotics type stuff and came up with this idea for this um, vaporizer that resembles a, a regular run-of-the-mill Ventolin inhaler uh, while he and his wife um, moved to Hong Kong. Oh. He was a huge fan of yours, listening to you all the way through the 80s and up before they moved off uh, to Hong Kong. And as a big fan, wanted to show his love and support for you by dropping the $500 that gets him uh, this conversation that we're having here right now. This is called a, a live read with a, I guess, semi-endorsement because neither one of you, neither one of us is... Uh, actually use this product. Neither of us are actually endorsing this product. We're just endorsing receiving the money for the product. Oh, okay. All right. Well, um, correct. He, he describes it as a modular portable vaporizer for the herbal product of your choice uh, with a swappable USB chargeable battery. You know, having, having that sitting on your desk in the office, charging might be a little um, <clears throat> suspicious. Listen, this, this, this could be cinnamon. It could be cloves. It could be any number of things. Uh, Dave's not here. Interesting to note, though, that you know he, he was asking me um, when we had the conversation uh, about his his plan. Uh, you know, what's the state of uh, support for this type of product in in Canada? And the CBC had an interesting documentary. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, the Fifth Estate that basically went out to Vancouver and pointed out that because doctors in this country don't have explicit guidelines as to what qualifies uh, to use, uh, what kind of medical ailment uh, is required before uh, medicinal marijuana can be prescribed, is that if you go in with a headache, you go in with a leg cramp, you can get a prescription, and that creates de facto legalization in this country. Benedict Fisher is a criminologist and an expert in substance use. He says the rules are so loose, 
you can ask your doctor to prescribe pot for virtually any medical condition. I mean, if you can't come up with a reason for that, you're either bloody stupid or you don't deserve to smoke a joint on a regular basis. But isn't this de facto legalization if I can buy marijuana when and where I want it? In essence, Mark, that's exactly what we have now. We have in Canada an emerging uh, situation of de facto cannabis legalization under the veil of medicalization. Don't tell the Conservatives this. Well, I don't have to, Mark, because they invented this thing. That's sort of what happened in California with all the uh, medical marijuana um, shops that they used to have. You could go in and uh, they would have a doctor on call and say, oh, I've got a backache or I've got a headache or I've got you know some sort of uh, ailment that can be mitigated with uh, medical marijuana and they would write you a script right in the, on, on, on the spot and then you could, uh, you know, you go into the store and you have, you know, basically a buffet there. There are some questions about this and, and the interesting t- thing too about the rise of this is that there's an industry building up on this. We know that Colorado and Washington State in the U.S. Uh, managed to uh, basically legalize this and they're taxing it, taxing it so much so that they're giving tax breaks back to the citizens because they've collected so much cash uh, for the school systems, etc. You have to be 21 and over to buy. And while the state sales tax is 2.9%, taxes on marijuana are closer to 29%. Last year, Colorado brought in about $60 million, money that would have gone to the black market. Further to the technology side of this, uh, Miller points out uh, that uh, this is the Puffet 2 vaporizer he's talking about, which comes us full circle because he says it's 20% smaller and has 75% better battery life than no matter what technology you are buying. Never buy the first generation. No, this is true. Absolutely. Okay. And he's decided to have a promo code. So if you would like a $20 discount, (laughs) and he's saying, Happy Chinese New Year, you just use the Geeks Ampersand Beats at the PayPal checkout uh, to save some cash. All right. And I would be interested to hear uh, uh, from anybody who has test drive the, what's it called again? It is called the Puffet too. Again, nerds everywhere are going to be apprehensive about pulling out their Ventolin inhalers for fear that people are going to start thinking, hey, there's some there's some kid over there smoking up. Well, this is true. However, again, I'm still going to put out an appeal for people who wish to review the product. I'd be very happy to take your reviews. Send, listen, if you use it, send along, tell us what you think. And um, if you are caught, you're just saying, hey, I got an asthma attack. He says that uh, this is his one-time... Um, Sponsorship. This is not going to become a regular thing, he says, because he's not uh, wealthy. He's not making a, uh, a ton of money off these, uh, this new Hong Kong-based technology. He said, by the way, that he has to ship these things through Singapore Post because it's so difficult to ship anything that has rechargeable batteries in it anymore. Really? Yeah, security issues. I'm going to Singapore later. Maybe uh, I could be paid to bring back a shipment. <laughs> You're going to be a mule for a completely legal product? <laughs> <laughs> well, so long as you get a cut out of it. Yeah, we could just imagine because I would have to uh, clear customs in the U.S. on my way back. Actually, no. On my way back, I would have to clear customs in Japan, which is even worse. So, no, I won't do it. Now, we've also got 
uh, as part of our Patreon system, in addition to the 500 bucks that we're raking in courtesy uh, of uh, Andrew's uh, support for the big show, uh, we have now 19 patrons in total. Chris Goss of Halifax, Nova Scotia, just the latest to join the World's Worst Intern Program, where you pay us a dollar an episode to work on the big show. Uh, we also have Matthew from Toronto, Rick C. in Oakville, Mike Tweedy, Grant Ridge, Fank Faveri, Paul, Kevin Priestley, Steve, Robin Calda, Corey Mosher, uh, Bevan Lance, Mike Wise, John Buffoni, The Straw Hat No, Joe G, and Gary Southers, all who are willing to open up their wallets every week for a buck at a time and help keep this show on the radio. Okay, so discounting Vape Man, yes. uh, how much are we making per show? Uh, $44. No kidding. I'm telling you, 544 today. Right. And and here's the, here's the best thing about it, is if Andrew Miller doesn't remove his sponsorship next week... <laughs> We're going to ding him again. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, you know, considering his product, maybe he might forget. <laughs> Think the internet is cool? Geeksandbeats.com is now available on computers. Read the stories the boys are talking about, stream the latest episode, and get caught up on back issues of the world's most popular podcast, Geeksandbeats.com. Also available on CD-ROM. Johnny, can you punch that up? Punch? Right. Herb, I'm gonna come out there and punch you. Roll tape. Dance rolling. Ferriman Funerals, take four. Ferriman Memorial Park offers you and your loved ones complete funeral services at a reasonable price. How's that? Perfect. <laughs> Tape's still rolling. Everybody ready? Yeah. <clears throat> One, two, three, four. This almost feels like we've got a funeral announcement segment on the show now. Do you remember that in small town radio? Oh yeah, we used to do it every afternoon. This was at uh, on CJRL in, in in Kenora. Every afternoon at twelve uh, forty, and you would play this dirgy funeral music in the background and read an, uh, an obituary over top of it. And at the time, there was this guy named Ted who worked there. And Ted's job, or so we thought, was to walk into the control room and try to make the on-air announcer laugh during the funeral report. And he would also be the guy that would see. This is back in the day when everything was sponsored by by beer. So he would give us the cart, and the cart would be labeled the OV Stiff Report. Oh. And then, and then at the end of the night, the radio station signed off at twelve oh eight after the broadcast news at midnight. And uh, the, the, the then we would have the following six hours of silence is brought to you by Blankety Blank Funeral Home. <laughs> the silence, the off air was brought to you by the funeral home. That's actually pretty. Creative. They sold. They sold dead air to a funeral. When uh, I worked in small town radio, we had a, a very strict policy. It was almost like nuclear launch codes, where you'd have two guys on opposite sides of the room with the keys, and you turn them simultaneously. Uh, in our shop, the uh, news 
reporter, the newscaster, would have to be the one to write up the funeral announcements, and the DJ would record them. So two separate people involved. Secondly, they were recorded. They were not done live after an unfortunate mishap when they did do them live on the air. <laughs> and it was the, the DJ hit it cold, and as you know, when you hit copy cold, something you've never read before, sometimes something silly can tweak in your head, and if the moment is inappropriate for a laugh, you're guaranteed to start giggling. Yeah, and you can't stop. That's exactly what happened. Uh, poor uh, Harold uh, in Fenland Falls, whose last name matched the name of the town, uh, got the DJ giggling so badly that there was a risk he was going to end up being fired. The solution was to uh, pre-record. Now, the funeral announcements, as much as we hated them and mocked them mercilessly, uh, were a huge source of income for a small-town radio station. And if you got uh, something wrong in a funeral announcement, you were at risk of losing your job. No, it's true. It's true because, well, if you made a mistake, that was a problem because you only got an obituary once. And if you <laughs> if you laughed, I mean, that was tantamount to, you know, ISIS-style, uh, hey, shut up out there. I'm here in Temple Bar, Dublin, and, and uh, there's a fight on the street outside my hotel. <laughs> uh, Ireland. Yeah. The reason why we're talking about funeral announcements here uh, is that uh, last year, Casey Kasem, big legendary DJ, passed on this past weekend, Gary Owens. Uh, and uh, as you point out on a Journal of MusicalThings.com and GeeksAndBeats.com, he was the goofy staff announcer for the Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. And you ask, more casually than anything else, ever wonder where that affection of an announcer holding a hand over his ear while talking came from? That's probably not where it actually originated from, but... Millions and millions of people saw Gary Owens do it. He would stand in front of the microphone with the on-air sign in the back, and he would have usually his right hand up to his right ear. And we all thought, all of us who wanted to get into radio, that's how you did it. You stood in front of a microphone covering one ear with your hand for some reason. Well, they used to do that for real back in the olden days and there was a very valid reason for doing that just as much as there is a valid reason why uh, through the uh, 30s and 40s everybody sounded like this on the radio do you know why yeah. because they were using ribbon microphones and ribbon microphones were very very fragile so you couldn't breathe into them because if you gave them you know one of those uh that pretty much uh, blew out the microphone and the ribbons themselves, as fragile as they were, were very firm, meaning that if you knocked the microphone, you risked damaging it. But because it was so such a stiff ribbon, you had to project so greatly to get that ribbon to move to create the sound, followed by the fact that it was AM radio and very poor quality AM radio back then, to the point where you needed a higher-pitched voice to cut through the noise. Or, conversely... You had to get really, really close to it and croon like Bing, Bing Crosby did. And that's why, where crooning came in, too, because it was, a, it was a mic technique. You could get very close to the microphone, but you had to sing rather quietly, but with a certain amount of stage whisper force so you wouldn't disturb the microphone, the ribbon within the microphone. And, and so that's where crooning came from, too. If you didn't know uh, Gary Owens as the man, uh, the announcer at Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, he was also, in addition to being a real radio DJ, the voice of Space Ghost and Roger Ramjet. Roger Ramjet, internationally famous good guy, devil-may-care flying fool and inventor of the Ramjet proton energy pill, which when taken as directed by a physician gives me the strength of 20 atom bombs for 20 seconds. Reporting, sir. 
Yeah, he did um, something like three thousand different cartoons over his his years. So he was a uh, you know like Casey Kasem. He was one of those legendary legendary. DJs with a tremendous amount of, of longevity, and it's. Uh, I hope they bury him a little quicker than they did poor Casey, who was uh, left in a fridge for six months. Yeah, that was a horrific situation. That, that, that was bad. Also on our funeral announcements, um, the founder of the Blitz Club, what CBGB was to punk in New York, the Blitz Club, uh, was for, as you write, the dandy dressers in London. This, this was the home of the New Romantic Movement. Yeah, yeah. Founded by a guy named Steve Strange, who moved to London when he was 15 to work with Malcolm McLaren and the Sex Pistols. He decided that he really liked the fashion end of of what was happening in the post-punk era. So he um, <coughs> founded this this night, this Blitz Club, uh, where people were encouraged to you know really express themselves in terms of makeup and dress and all the rest of it. It was like Bowie on steroids. In fact, if you go back to 1979, you see the uh, the Ashes to Ashes video that Bowie did. Very expensive video for the time, about $250,000. Um, one of the guys in the background uh, of the video is is actually Steve Strange. And um, the, the club became this magnet for all these people who were into this kind of uh, more melodic, less angry, very fashion forward, very fashion conscious music. And that's where we got uh, Culture Club. Uh, Duran Duran used to hang around the Blitz Club. Uh, Spando Ballet used to hang around the Blitz Club. Um, Boy George, in fact, used to work in the cloakroom. Uh, and, and it was a very important thing and a very important place for, for, for the technopop and the electronic music that uh, we got in the early 1980s out of the UK. Strange himself was in a band as well. Uh, the 1981 uh, hit Fade to Grey by the band Visage. That was his band, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I know I have a whole bunch of 12-inch singles from um, from uh, Visage, and and Steve was Steve was the singer, and they had a number of, of decent hits in the early part of the 80s. They were very uh, pioneering too with the whole idea of the 12-inch remix in the technopop era. One thing that I didn't know about Steve Strange in that particular track uh, is that Larry Mullen Jr. of U2 was obsessed with learning how to play it, and it became the basis for the song New Year's Day. That is the story. Now earlier today. Earlier today, I was at 60 Rosemont Avenue in the north part of Dublin, which was Larry Mullen's childhood home. And I was thinking about this story. Of course, he would have moved out of there by that time because New Year's Day came out of the war album. That was 1983. But uh, yes, so these two things kind of collided because I was in Larry Mullen's childhood home front yard taking a picture of whoever lived there now. (laughs) <laughs> Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. One of my favorite musicians of the 80s was Howard Jones, and he's back. Yeah, I remember seeing Howard Jones at the old Kingswood Music Theater in Toronto, up in Canada's Wonderland. And this was uh, 87-ish, 88-ish, back at a time when uh, it was, you know, MIDI controllers and sequencers and samplers. They were all still pretty temperamental and didn't always work together well. But he put on an entire show, and I remember there was only one time 
and it was only him and this pile of gear on stage. And there was only one time where things didn't quite didn't start. But otherwise, he was it was a great one man show. So along with Thomas Dolby, he was one of the really big pioneers of the one man. I can do it all MIDI interface one man band thing. That's that whole sequencer world. Yeah. Which in the 80s, sequencing was very different than what it is today, where you would just hit play, record, and play something, and the computer would put it all together for you. Do you remember step sequencers where you would have, if you wanted four, four time, you would have, and you wanted an eighth note, you had to do the mental math as to the number of positions within the sequencer's memory that would take uh, to ensure that the, tr the the note only played for that particular length of time. Oh, and heaven help you if you ran out of the 2K of memory that you had. No, no, that and drum machines, uh, they were they were absolute nightmares. Um, uh, the Sisters of Mercy had a, never had a live drummer, but they had a, uh, a drum machine as part of the band, and they called him Dr. Avalanche because he was always crashing. <laughs> Howard uh, has this uh, new app that allows you, as a fan, to get involved in any of his live concerts and interact directly with the performance. It works on the uh, Android and iOS operating systems, and it's called Engage. It's interesting now that we have performers who are asking you to pick up your smartphone during a performance rather than put it down. Right, because weren't you at a concert recently, Kate Bush's big uh, concert series, where if you pulled out your smartphone, you'd get ejected from the performance? Saw it happen a couple of times. And then there are people like the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and uh, Green Day and uh, Jack White and any number of them who actually make announcements saying, hey, put your phones away, enjoy the show. But this is exactly the opposite. You've got digital interactions, including a digital glove you can wave in the air, a scrolling message you can change, and a flashing light to shine. This is sort of the 21st century version of holding up your lighter. Yeah, it's. I think it's really kind of cool. Uh, Coldplay did something like this on their last tour, not with an app, but with uh, some wristbands. These wristbands cost uh, 3 or $4 a piece, and they were all sequenced together. So they, somebody somewhere in the building would fire a command and, and everybody's wristband would either light up or change color or do a chase pattern or something like that. So, so this is the start. This is, you know, fan engagement. How do you get, how do you, how do you get people really, really deep into your show? His new multimedia project he calls Engage uh, will have the London premiere February 20th. Right. That's Saturday. No, Friday, Friday. Meantime, Apple, as we've been reporting time and time again on this show, has got to be working on a new car. And the Wall Street Journal says, in fact, yes, they've got hundreds of people on a top-secret project that is an electric minivan? I saw the picture of it, but... No, no, no. What you saw was not the minivan that is their um, autonomous vehicle. You saw what appears to be, because it's got a rack on top of it, is this thing for their own version of Google Street View. That, that's what we believe they're actually working on with that photo you saw. Oh, oh okay. So why don't they just buy... Tesla. Well, they, they had conversations with Tesla at one point, if I recall correctly. Yeah, they should just buy it. You know, and, you know, with, with, with the amount of money that Apple has, I mean, they closed last week, they closed with what, $730 billion of market cap? Right. And the cash in the bank is in the neighborhood of $178 billion. If Apple was an independent country, it'd be the 55th largest country in the world. Okay, so the, the I'm checking here. The uh, market cap of Tesla is $25.5 So chump change for Apple just to pick up the whole company lock, stock, and barrel. Yeah, completely. Uh, Apple is, uh, just check right now, Apple is $740.2 So 
they could buy Tesla and still have $700 billion in market cap. With that in mind, um, if this is an electric minivan they're working on, they're clearly not working on the sexy demographic that their phones are generally targeted towards. Do you want to drive an iVan? They're not getting my business for it. No. <laughs> no, no, no. And I don't want an autonomous vehicle. I, want, I like to drive. I want one with all kinds of gadgetry in it, but I do not want, want one that's, uh, that's autonomous. Uh, this uh, vehicle is codenamed Titan, and the uh, work behind the scenes on it is expected to take years, according to this Gizmodo article itself. Uh, to your point, though, there was a Dodge Caravan that was outfitted uh, with what appears to be self-driving technology spotted around the Bay Area, but it is most likely something they're working on for Apple Maps. The big problem that the map industry had gotten to when they came up with Street View and all of that was that as 3D-ish as Street View is, it's still technically two dimensions. And they realize that if they're going to have autonomous cars taking advantage of mapping technology, GPS technology, they need that Z-axis. So Google's been driving through neighborhoods all around the world all over again, not just to update the maps, uh, but to give it that third dimension so that vehicles know exactly where everything is, right down to the, the signs on the road and that tree off to the side. Yeah, because I, I, I would appreciate appreciate that because uh, the rental car I had today through the country uh, through the countryside of Ireland was a, a 2008 Garmin. Oh. And uh, yeah, let's just say that uh, we ended up uh, in some places where we really shouldn't have. The last time I used a Garmin, wifey and I, first of all, she ne she does not have any spousal approval factor for this technology whatsoever. She does not trust my iPhone, and it's largely because she does not trust the Garmin we once had, which when we were out somewhere one time, ordered me to make a right turn now, and had I made a right turn now, I would have slammed directly <laughs> into a brick wall. And had I made the right turn 250 feet later, I still would have slammed into a brick wall. There was no right turn to be made. And from that point forward, she concluded that you cannot trust G GPS technology, no matter how much better it's gotten since Garmin came out with their nonsense unit back in 1997. Let me just say that I saw parts of Ireland today that I don't think anybody has seen since the 10th century. <laughs> oh, yes. It was, uh, it was one of those ones you stick to your windshield. Uh, hey, uh, Geeks and Beats update. We hadn't talked about this uh, we talked about this last week. Samsung's uh, got that TV now that listens to everything that you say and uh, beams it back to a third party so that they can decipher what it is you're saying. And they, their big end user license agreement warns you, hey, just so you know, uh, we're sending all your private conversations back uh, to the mothership. Their uh, follow-up response to the hue and cry over it was, uh, yeah. We're still going to do it, but you can disable it if you want. Now we're learning, courtesy of Mashable.com, that the new Samsung TVs have started inserting ads into your own videos. Wow. Oh, my. So you're watching essentially offline, yet they're injecting commercials into your stream. Yeah. It looks like it may be a glitch of some sort. On Monday, a Reddit user complained in a post that a muted Pepsi ad started playing while he was watching shows and movies on his Samsung TV, where the actual files for the movies were on his private media server, and that it had nothing to do with anything he had downloaded or was, was streaming or anything like that. And uh, apparently the solution is to go to the Yahoo privacy notice inside your Samsung smart TV and disable um, the Yahoo feature. I, I bought an LG TV for the studio and I disabled everything. Absolutely everything. I don't, all I want is a dumb screen. 
Uh, this, according to several Australian owners of the Samsung Smart TVs who complained about the Pepsi ads being stuffed into their cable TV programming as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, when people ask me about buying a, a smart TV, my advice is don't. Simply don't. And, and it's kind of difficult now to actually buy a television without the smart TV functionality built into it. When it comes down to it, Samsung's actually got a, a pretty good one. Uh, I've got an LG. It's really sluggish. It's clunky. It doesn't work very well. And every time I turn my freaking TV on, it's asking for, for a firmware update. So here's what I recommend you do. Uh, get a TV. Doesn't matter what the features are on the smart TV side. Ensure that the picture quality is solid. Good blacks, good whites. And then... For a hundred bucks, get yourself an Apple TV. If you are an Apple user, you got an iPhone, an iPad, an iMac, all that kind of stuff, just get an Apple TV. Your life will be substantially simpler. Now, if you are an Android user, you've got a $100 option that's just as easy to use, if not easier, uh, particularly if you're an Android user, uh, for your TV. It's the uh, Chromecast. It's also a $100 gadget, and it's actually really kind of neat because it looks like a thumb drive, and it plugs directly into the HDMI port on your TV. It, no cables or anything like that. It does the Wi-Fi, and it'll talk to your phone itself, and it will stream everything from your phone. Back in in the olden days, we used to have media center PCs, and you would have a whole separate computer with a hard drive and a spinning fan making all this noise, and those days are slowly going by the wayside. We have all of this stuff that's easily accessible, Netflix, etc., all on our smartphones. All's you need to do, as a buddy of mine used to say in my hometown, is hook up one of these things do the video streaming through the wireless capability, and once all is said and done, you're not fiddling around with this proprietary technology. My LG does uh, Skype, and you can do the video Skyping. The only problem is, is they've got a relationship with Logitech, so I can't just plug any Logitech webcam in or any webcam at all. It has to be a very specific model from Logitech because that's the relationship they've got, because they think that's the smart TV way to go. It's absolutely ridiculous. You've fallen asleep, haven't you? Yeah, i got no time for that. Turn it on, show me what I want to see, I want to watch Top Gear. Okay, I'm done going to bed. <laughs> so no matter how smart your TV, if the user is dumb... Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.